uh, continuing the series of the hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, for those of you who are out there, we're done with the book-based uh, 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 Hard Sayings of Jesus by John Ogilvy. But what I did do is go to the staff and say, do you all have some hard sayings? And, of course, they came up with some, don't you know? And the first one was this reading that we're going to have today that makes it so difficult for uh, so many progressive Christians because this reading seems so arrogant. Begins in the 14th chapter of John. Do not let this throw you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There's plenty of room in my creator's home. If that weren't so, I would have told you, I would not have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you. And if I'm on my way to get a room ready, I'll come back and so you can live where I live. You already know the road that I am taking. And Thomas said, Master, we have no idea where you're going. How do you expect us to know the road? And Jesus said, are you ready now? Here it comes. I am the road, also the truth, also the life. No one gets to the creator apart from me. If you really knew me, you would know my creator as well. From now on, you do know the Creator. You've even seen God. And Philip said, Master, show us God, and then we'll be content. You have been with me all this time, Philip, and you still don't understand? To see me is to see God. So how can you ask, where is God? Don't you believe that I am in God and God is in me? The words that I speak aren't mere words. I don't just make them up on my own. The creator who resides in me crafts each word into a divine act. Hello. <clears throat> well, my goodness, you've just read, or you've just listened to, what has become traditional theology of the church. <laughs> this is the passage that everybody points to that says the only way you can be saved is to accept Jesus because Jesus is God. Now you notice I titled the sermon. That just because something along the lines, I don't remember the exact title, but something along the lines that just because the church says it must make it true. Well, that's not true. Let me first of all set the framework for you. Number one, God is not so small. And the universe is far bigger than this small God that we've been taught that the only way to get there is this guy that ran around Jerusalem for three years. 
Now, before people have a heart attack and faint and go, oh, my God, he's not into Jesus. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that he's not the only way. That God didn't create this vast universe for this one guy over in Israel to save the entire universe. Or the entire world, for that matter. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi, or maybe something, uh, maybe it was Siddhartha, out of, uh, uh, through the Buddhist faith, which, by the way, existed long before Christianity, who said, one mountain, many paths. There's lots of ways that you get to the top of the mountain. And if we're going to talk about the diversity of God, then I wish we would please stop with this arrogant, self-serving theology that says Jesus is it. Jesus is important to me. And for those of you who are listening to me that are Christian, he may be important to you. He, in fact, may be the way for you. But that doesn't mean that there's not another path for the Muslims, that there's not another path for the Jews, that there's not another path for the Hindus. Now, you have heard me say, and now I guess I'm saying it internationally, that the problem with the Gospel of John to begin with, and taking it and turning this into a whole theology, is the fact that the Gospel of John got into the Bible because it's really a literary apology all right, you follow me with that? A literary apology for the divinity of Christ. And for those of you who don't know what I mean when I say a literary apology, a literary apology is a defense. It was written to prove that Jesus was God. So the author had already a place that he was going as he starts to tell the story of Jesus' life. And, you know, he went there. He has Jesus saying something to the effect that makes Jesus God. Now, here's the other thing. Even if you don't want to buy that, I would challenge you today to go into any of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and show me where Jesus says, I'm the only way. As a matter of fact, I would remind you that there's a story in Matthew where Jesus is going from town to town doing his thing and the disciples noticed that there were a bunch of other people doing some of the same things. They were healing, they were feeding, and they come to Jesus and they said, yeah, man, they're doing this stuff, but they're not doing it in your name. You want us to stop them. Y'all remember what Jesus' response was? That's right. If they're not against us, they're for us. For us, leave them alone. That does not sound to me like somebody who is sitting there saying, "Oh, by the way, there's only one way to do this." Now, we have a member or a person who's friends with this church who has been traveling. Unbeknownst to me, in their travels, they've been listening to the sermons. And they've been watching uh, on our website what the sermon topic is each week. 
And this person just happens to be over in Italy. They've been uh, with the, they had an audience with the Pope and, you know, just all that church stuff, right? They sent me an email saying, by the way, I saw what you were preaching on and I was a little disturbed. But now I want to share with you what he said after that. They're over in the Vatican at this point, and they say, of particular interest to me were those who sat as a Buddha sits in meditation. Our guide said some of the monks had been in silence and meditation for days. I watched in disbelief, certain that any moment one or more of them would move or flinch with discomfort or boredom but they never did. To the contrary, they seemed perfectly content, happy, and at peace. Their discipline of spiritual devotion was foreign to me. Not even among the most devout of Christians have I ever witnessed anything that would compare to it. And although I was just an adolescent, uh, introduced as an adolescent and thoroughly self-absorbed, I recalled an offense I felt when one of the Christians in our group morosely muttered, ready for this? Look at those poor, quote, look at those poor monks sitting there day in and day out, and for what? If they only knew my Jesus, they would be saved and would go to heaven when they die, and they would not have to sit there like that. This is not the first occasion when I have questioned religious assumptions of my own Christian tradition. On one side of me was the Thai guide, okay, explaining the Buddhists had been practicing their faith for several hundred years before the birth of Christ. The Hindus much longer, some say a thousand years or more. And standing on the other side, however, was this Christian woman from our group feeling completely justified in her arrogance. Condescending and exclusive attitude. I thought to myself, how dare you? How can you be so certain that we're right and they're wrong? So what if it turns out that they're, what happens if it turns out they're right and you're wrong? The longer I thought about it, other questions come to mind. Had you or I been born in Thailand rather than America, there's a high probability we would be Buddhists today and not Christians. So how is it that our, quote, luck of a birthplace, unquote, so to speak, and by the lack of luck makes us more deserving of God than they? It's been many years, and I've had a hard time verbalizing these questions or to even admit them to you, Pastor, now. I knew that if I ever did, I would certainly face rejection from many Christians and even wrath. It would take a series, and has taken, a series of life-changing events to bring me to a place where my questions and omissions are no longer mandated or managed by the opinions or beliefs of others. I want you to hear that closely. It has taken a lifetime, basically, to get to a place where this gentleman's questions and omissions are no longer managed 
or mandated by the opinions and beliefs of others. Think about that. When Christians say to another Christian, are you saved? What are you saying? You believe like I do. I have felt for a long way, a long time, what you have what you have described in your blogs. I used to think I was alone. Thank you for giving me permission to affirm my own faith and respect all others. You know what? Isn't that where it's at? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? You understand that when Jesus was talking to these disciples, you understand where it is in the gospel, right? He's getting ready to die. He knows that he's about to be arrested. He knows that he's about to be murdered. I use the word assassinated. And I get people that look at me all the time going, Pastor, he wasn't assassinated. He was crucified. And I said, no, that was the method of assassination. But what they're really upset about is the whole atonement thing. That he died for your sins, and that's where our, our salvation is. Well, that's only because of what John is saying in this particular gospel. And the thing, the point that we miss is Jesus never said this in public. He said this to his disciples. This is like if you have terminal cancer and you know you're going to die. This is the conversation that you have with your family. As a matter of fact, it's an hour, a chapter later where Jesus does an incredible prayer for the disciples to protect them in this world. As a And I wrote this down because I, I wanted to make sure I didn't get it wrong. As a progressive Christian pastor, I have frequently received critical pushback from conservatives and fundamentalist Christians who adamantly declare that the only way to experience salvation <clears throat> is by giving intellectual assent to certain specific claims about the life of Jesus. Scratch that. They don't generally care about his life. Their focus is primarily on Jesus' death and resurrection. Their message, using John as the basis, boils down to this. That unless you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he physically arose from the grave, you are a heretic and you will go to hell. Now there are five problems with this. Lance, you'll be so proud of me that I actually bullet-pointed these. All right. One, the first problem is that there's a lack of emphasis on what Jesus' 30, 33 years of life was about. Number two, in other words, uh, let me back up. What his life was about. What did he teach? Do we ever talk about what he teaches? No, you know, you ever notice that when you get in an argument with somebody say, oh, I don't know, about the death penalty? And they say, oh, yeah, kill him. And you say, well, what did Jesus say? Let the first one without sin cast the first stone. Oh, well, we're going to change the subject now. Number two, we have reduced the faith to a cerebral matter that individuals accept as accurate. In other words, God said it. I believe it, that settles it. 
Number three, the view that salvation is largely a matter where we go when we die. In other words, it isn't about the life that you live on this earth. It isn't about your relationships with people. Salvation is nothing more for these folks than are you going to end up in heaven? I would think that God created us for something far more important than where we go when we leave this earth. Number four, the idea that is, is Jesus' death on the cross that allows people to experience salvation. Jesus never said that. What did Jesus say was the way to salvation? What Jesus said about salvation was, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was sick and in prison, and you visited me. I was naked, or in Georgia, naked. And you clothed me. And everybody sat there and wanted to know, well, wait, no, when did we do this to you? And his response was, when you have done this to the least of these, you have done it to me. I'm sorry, folks. It is not about the cross. And finally, I saved this for the kicker. Because everybody thinks they know what salvation is, right? Y'all think you know that definition. The church has been talking about it for a couple thousand years. What have you done to be saved? Well, I went back and looked it up. And I bet you I'm not the first pastor to do this. I'm probably able to do this because I have an independent church. People in denominational churches will have a little tougher time with this. But listen to this. The word in Hebrew for salvation means healing, wholeness, and well-being. Healing, wellness, wholeness. Lord, have mercy. That is not some place out in the universe that we go to when we die. It is no... Oh, and by the way, I'll say this just so I put it out there. The whole theology of hell is a waste of time because hell is not a Christian theology. Listen to the meaning again. Healing, wholeness, and well-being. Brothers and sisters, you do that while you live, while you interrelate. Yes, the Gospel of John is a literary apology for making Jesus God. And that is not what Jesus taught. God bless you.